Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for dropping by. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is New Books in Science Fiction, where I spend time with writers of fantasy, science, and speculative fiction to talk about their books, the writing process, the world, and whatever else is knocking around their minds. This is the Out for Blood episode. Joining me today is Chris Panettiere, who is a writer, artist, and lawyer. His debut novel, The Phlebotomist, was released a few months ago, and I am honored to have him join me now via Skype from his home in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Chris, it is a pleasure to have you with me today on the pod. Well, thank you so much. I was flattered to be asked to be on. I have listened to a few of the episodes that you've done. It's so it's so crazy. I'm always looking for new sci-fi and fantasy writing podcasts, and I'm looking through your list, and I'm like, this guy's got all the heavy hitters on here. I mean, it's it's amazing. I was listening to the episode with Rebecca Rowanhorse and Alex Harrow, and I'm just so I'm I'm incredibly flattered to be on here. And I think you should probably be on more lists because if you look up a uh, best sci-fi podcasts, it's just a bunch of gobbledygook for the most part. I need help with marketing. That's that's a good point. But I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And and you are on your way to heavy hitting, too. That's that's what happens when you're on the show. If you're not one already, you you become a heavy hitter magically. This is the key. This is where you come and then you become a heavy hitter. Yes, yes, exactly. It's just a magic elixir of just being on. <laughs> well, speaking of, of, I suppose, heavy hitter and writing careers, you are one of those Lucky, I suppose, writers, you could say, who had his first book released smack in the middle of the pandemic, which, of course, I know sucked. There were no conventions and no traditional book tours, not traditional conventions anyway, online ones. And a lot of bookstores weren't even open in parts of the country. But rather than focus on the downside, I'm going to try to turn it around and ask you if there is anything at all positive that you have seen at all about having your book debut in the middle of really an otherwise disastrous year like 2020 having a book having a book come out at all is a wonderful blessing i mean i dreamt about it for years I, it's funny i will say that i'm not superstitious but i'm totally superstitious from bedtime routines to all sorts of stuff about hoping to get an agent one day and hoping to get a book deal so from my perspective I'm just so absolutely excited that I even got a book deal and that a book came out and it was on shelves. And so I, yeah, it was not ideal to come out during a pandemic. And I kept hoping it would end before my release date because the pandemic started about six and a half months before my book came out. And I told myself early, I said, well, you know, it'll be over before that, even though I was trying to be realistic about the fact that it would take some time, but here we are in January of 2021. It's still raging, but I try to maintain a pretty even keel and look around and not just at my 
writing career, but at my life and recognize that I'm fortunate and healthy and all of that. And so, so I kind of look at it all together. And then I also took some lessons from it. Everybody has stumbling blocks in their writing careers and you try to grow from it. And if, if this is one of those early stumbling blocks, then so be it, you know, who knows what sales would have looked like had um, there not been a pandemic and the phlebotomist might, the publisher says it's selling well, but I don't know what that means in the context of in a pandemic, out of a pandemic or anything like that. So yeah, there's some, there's some things I would have liked. I would have liked to have gone to some cons and, you know, having just published a book and all of that, but you know, we'll all get it back on our feet next year, hopefully. And those experiences will just be delayed a little bit. Yeah. And then people do say people are reading more. So maybe overall more books are being sold. Who, who knows? I, I love your attitude. It's great. There, there are articles that I've read and even cited to in a couple of blog posts I made about how book sales were way up and, but it's way up for what book sales? I don't know. But the fact that especially within science fiction and fantasy, it looks like, you know, those publishers are plugging right along and they're announcing new deals all the time. And so looks like hopefully cross your fingers, hopefully they'll make it through this. Let's talk a little bit about the title. Weirdly enough, I happen to actually have a uh, an unusual blood condition that 20 years ago made me quite familiar with the work of phlebotomists. But I actually don't think I knew the word before that. And I wonder if some readers might find it unusual. So I thought maybe you could explain what a phlebotomist is and why that's the title of your book. Yeah, sure. So a phlebotomist is a pretty highly specialized technical position in the medical field. A phlebotomist is someone who is trained in venipuncture, right? Going into a vein, collecting blood for purposes of testing or for donation or those types of purposes. And so they are very, very adept with a needle and tubes and collection bags. And if you have ever had your blood drawn by a phlebotomist versus a all around practitioner, you probably would rather have it drawn by the phlebotomist <laughs> just because they do it a bazillion times a day. And as someone who has had my blood drawn a decent amount of times, I generally don't feel it when the phlebotomist does, does it, but I, I do when somebody else does it. <laughs> And the main character of your book is, in fact, a phlebotomist. So I guess that seemed like the natural, yeah, a natural option for the title. Right. And I'm sorry, to answer the second part of your question, it's actually a pretty interesting answer. I think when I came up with the idea for the book, I knew what the concept was going to be. I knew who the bad guys were going to be. I knew that this was going to have to do with blood and I don't know whether it's just my age or the, the the movies I've watched or whatever, but I knew this was going to be a dystopian setting. And so as I was driving to work one day, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have a, a young lady or a young man or maybe a young lady and a young man, and they'll they'll be my protagonists. And then I was like, wait, why? Well, like, why? <laughs> That's just that just seems to be the default in in media. Right. And. I thought, who deals with blood? Who deals with blood? And I was like, well, phlebotomists deal with blood. And so a phlebotomist should be the protagonist. And 
my experience had been that most of the phlebotomists I had were older women. So that's kind of right where it, where it started. That does make her unusual that she's an older woman. The book takes blood type. So, you know, A, AB, O positive, negative, and it turns it into a tool to, in the society in your story, it's a tool to repress and to segregate people. And I thought maybe you could explain to listeners, you know, how that works and why society in the setting of your book has come to use blood that way to rank people and organize people. Sure. Well, there is a requirement in the world of this book that everybody give blood, a pint of blood once every 45 days, and they have to give blood to uh, help uh, support the war effort, which is not in the locality of the book. It's, it's somewhere else, this war effort. And everybody has to give blood in support of the war effort. And this is also near future. So automation has also taken away most of the jobs, meaning that most people don't really have access to a job. They don't have income. And so the way that they get their food rations is by giving blood. And for those who can bear to give more blood than that, the blood contractor that sort of runs, you know, has sort of taken hold of the government. There's this blood contractor called Patriot, ironically named as that is, and they will offer extra money above the required amount, the required allotment for people who can give more. And this is where things got really interesting. When I was researching the book, of course, there's eight main ABO blood types and each one, of course, has different compatibility, different percentages of people have it in the population, which would mean that certain blood types would be worth more money than others. So it created this economy where just by virtue of blood type, you are segregated through no fault of your own. It has nothing to do with anything you did, any merit, anything like that. And of course, to me, this has a lot of allegories, but it was one that didn't approach segregation from our usual vantage point, right, of socioeconomic or race. This was something else that I hoped would catch people off guard and maybe even make people say, geez, where would I be? in this, you know, I'm, I'm AB positive. That puts me in the slum because AB positive is universal recipient and can only be donated to other AB positive individuals. And so it tiered society according to blood type. And this is of course, what would happen if blood was really the only currency. It just took off from there. And the name of the company Patriot, I think, keys in to one of your themes. And I read in a blog post you referenced actually the Patriot Act, which we have had in the United States or used to have. And that was a real life example you were giving of how under the banner of patriotism, a government can essentially leech away people's rights. And that's similar to what happens in the in the phlebotomist. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the parallels that you see in something like the Patriot Act, or something that evokes patriotism and yet is able to manipulate people in a way that perhaps they don't really understand the full depth of? 
Yeah, well, the the world of the phlebotomist, as far as what happens, you know, creeping authoritarianism is something that we've seen in our world many, many times. And it continues to threaten in places like the United States where we have generally avoided it. But the example of the Patriot Act was, I just thought it was a very interesting study in how something happened to our country and people having the best of intentions, the the population having the best of intentions, wanted to do whatever they could do for their country. And they felt very patriotic. And the people who are our representatives in government probably could have put up a better fight against the Patriot Act, which broadened the government's surveillance powers and the ability to surveil its own citizens with very little cause. Things like public library checkout lists, right? Where they could they could find out what books you were reading, things like that. And that those types of power grabs tend to meet less resistance when it is done under the banner of patriotism. We are doing this to protect our country. Now, of course, there was some resistance to this, but it's very, very hard to fight against someone who comes wrapped in the flag. And that, of course, is an old trope, but it's very true. And in the book of the phlebotomist, there has been a war and the government via this big contractor, this sort of ubiquitous contractor called Patriot has slowly crept into the realm of individual rights and privacy and all of these things until one day everyone wakes up and there's a mandatory blood draw and they have to give blood every day and there's surveillance and they're tracked everywhere. When initially all of that had started as a patriotic thing to do. There was a war. People were asked to give blood and so they proudly did it. And then slowly it became more than that until it was mandatory and people were then sort of under the boot of the government and this sort of enigmatic contractor that was doing the government's bidding or perhaps had just simply supplanted the government. So it's it's a bit of an allegory for sure. And it is absolutely on the nose. Um, it was meant to be because these are things I, I see in our everyday lives. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that the book takes an unexpected turn at about 20% in, but yeah. but The Phlebotomist is also a vampire story, but not in any sense uh, a conventional vampire story. These aren't undead vampires who live in coffins or can only be vanquished with wooden stakes or silver bullets. They're really your own creation, you know, they're the Chris Panettiere version of a vampire and they're they're like corporate vampires really and they do i guess like all vampires they do enjoy drinking blood but otherwise there's something very original about them so i wonder if you could talk just a little bit about your decision to to make it a vampire story but do it in your own way well thank you very much for saying that it's original because with a trope as long and i mean ageless as vampires 
it's very hard to do something original. It's funny. I am in very many ways a contradiction. I enjoy vampires as a creation, but I've never been a, you know, hardcore vampire person. I, I didn't read the Twilight books. I've seen the movies. I have not gotten deep into vampires. And that is in a way that, that, that might be offensive to people who are real hardcore vampire fans. But at the same time, it allowed me to create a vampire story and a vampire lore that was original um, because I wasn't stuck to the typical rules of vampirism other than the main one being that they have to drink blood. And also it wasn't a um, teen romance, <laughs> which is good. You know, when it comes to vampire stories, my favorite book and it's not just because it's a vampire book my favorite one of my favorite novels or series of novels is the passage by justin cronin which is just absolutely brilliant and of course the vampires there are used as a catalyst for so much more what i set out to do is i did not decide that these bad guys were going to be vampires you know as i was writing the book i i knew it the second I came up with the book because the genesis of this story was I was going to bed one night. It was 20, 2018. Yeah. January, 2018. And Trump and the GOP had just passed a $17 trillion tax break for the richest people, literally just like the richest people, not the middle class, not the poor, the richest people, the people who need it the least. And as I was going to bed pissed off, I thought to myself, what a bunch of bloodsuckers. They're just bloodsuckers. And as I'm laying there, I was like, what if we didn't know it? But throughout all of time, the very upper crust, the rich, what if they were always vampires and they just hid it from us? And that was the genesis for the book. So that was the premise. So what I wanted to do was I had to create a world where they are very well hidden, but they still feed, right? So there can't be mass murder. There can't be, you know, people getting snatched out of the alleys because then you, you'd know that there was a, a problem. It, it would inevitably come out. And so I had to create a society where there, where it had been mechanized and where people were <laughs> giving their blood basically to the government through this contractor. So that was how it came about. And I thought this plays very much into the theme of patriotism and government control, because as you learn in the story, and again, a little bit spoilery, but as you learn in the story, these, and they're not called vampires, they take great offense <laughs> if you call them vampires. They're called Iker wolves. But they sort of figured out that they could prey on the patriotism of people to get them to just give their blood away. That's sort of how all, how all of that was built. And they build this whole infrastructure to make this happen. Well, if ever we needed a reminder how easy it is to manipulate people to do crazy things and believe crazy things, we just need to reflect on the past, past week or so. Uh, but... 
anyway, I mean, it really it hits home. You know, you could you could read your book and say, well, that seems very unlikely. But just you know, read the newspaper, and um, and nothing seems unlikely anymore. I would, I would editorialize. Yeah, well, I think that's right, and and, and the the one other thing that they mastered was, of course, control of news. Whenever there was a question as to how powerful that is, look at the impact having Trump kicked off Twitter had on the content that's out there and the ability of insurrectionists and so forth to get their message out without parlor and without being on Twitter. And they have to go further and further and further underground. It's much more difficult. Well, the, the phlebotomist kind of gives you the reverse of that, which is that, yeah, there's media, but it's whatever it's whatever Patriot wants you to see. And so when there is a single channel of communication that's out there, it's very easy to control people, even people who don't want to be controlled. It's very easy to do. You're a lawyer as well as a science fiction writer. And as a lawyer, uh, you specialize in representing victims of toxic exposure to different poisons, I guess, or environmental poisons. Or maybe you could explain a little bit. I mean, I was I, I saw your website and I also saw your closing argument on YouTube in a trial against Johnson & Johnson on behalf of plaintiffs who said the company's talc-based products cause their mesothelioma. And it occurred to me that there are similarities in your work as a lawyer and as the author of The Phlebotomist. Uh, and I wonder if you agree, because I thought, well, obviously, there's both jobs require talent with language, and they also call upon you to master a very specific kind of science. You really have to understand, in the case of the trial that I saw your closing argument in, you have to understand the science of asbestos. And the phlebotomist is all about the science of, well, blood and blood transfusions and blood disease. So I just wonder if the skill set, if you see a similar skill set there and if there is a parallel. Well, that, I mean, it's a very it's a very good observation on on for the first thing that you can notice is that I'm not a friend of corporate America. <laughs> the phlebotomist addresses that. And in my law practice, I am trying to hold to account companies who do dangerous things knowingly and hurt people. That's the first thing. But you're absolutely right on the science which is that, you know, I've been practicing for 20 years almost. And over that time, I've always done toxic torts, they're called. Toxic torts is the fancy word for someone gets hurt from poison, basically. As, as opposed to toxic tarts, I imagine, which can kill you if you eat them. Yeah, toxic tarts, which is what I make when I try to make <laughs> Right, dessert. exactly. Yeah. Okay, I just had to say that. <laughs> it, look, I'm telling you, it's funny. You show up in law school and it takes a little while to go, torts? Well, are these like the the dessert? Because there are torts too, mm, yes. right? Yeah. Right. The, those are the aren't those the ones with the layers? I think so. Yeah, like soccer tort. I think is Austrian. Now I have to look it up. Well, now I have to I have to rerun my my Great British Bake Off back catalog. Mm. <laughs> but to to get back to your question, over that two decades, I didn't know that I was going to want to become a science fiction writer. So I wasn't training for that, but it ended up being very good training because I have to master a lot of science. I have to understand it, process it, 
read peer-reviewed literature and all of that and understand it at least enough to be conversant with my experts, to explain it to judges when those experts are challenged, and then break it down for juries. And, and that's very much what you do when you write science fiction, because what you have to do is you cannot just sort of understand it and then explain it, right? You can't just understand the thumbnail sketch yourself and then give the thumbnail sketch, even if that's what you're ultimately going to give the reader. It doesn't work that way. In order to give the thumbnail sketch to the reader that truly makes sense, you do actually have to understand it at a deeper level. And I'm not saying that I had to become a phlebotomist or a geneticist in blood, but I had to do a lot of research just to be able to then distill it into something that made sense for the reader and but was still firmly rooted in the science. And, and I really set out to do something that was very believable, very much grounded in the science of blood. And I didn't want to change any of the basic science. The only hand waving truly in, in, in the whole thing, I think, is the bad guys. That, that's the one thing you have to believe is that these guys exist. The rest of it works. Compatibility works and how blood is transfused and how apheresis works, right? Where you separate out platelets or plasma from whole blood and all of that. So I had to learn all that. And I did actually have to read peer-reviewed papers on a lot of it to understand how anti-clotting agents work, because as boring as that might sound, just talking about it in a vacuum, anti-clotting agents were very, very key to this book. <laughs> so I had to really learn about that to get Willa to have her big sort of revelation where she realizes something is up. I mentioned before I have this unusual blood disorder. It's called polycythemia vera, and it's very unusual. And you actually mention it in the book, and I have never seen it mentioned anywhere. It's like, why would it ever come up in a book, especially fiction? So I thought, well, this man knows what he's talking about. Oh, my gosh. I'm treated for it, and everything's fine. But when I first was diagnosed, it was very scary, and I did learn a lot about blood, and I spent a lot of time with a phlebotomist, too. So just seeing it in print, I was like, whoa, Chris did research, most, most definitely. That's incredible because I had never heard of that condition either before I was doing the research and it was the perfect sort of little fact to use at that point in the story. I think that's where, where Everard comes in and he's and he's handing over his blood bag for the first time. I think the Wolves would love me because the illness is an overproduction of red blood cells. So I would get all the bonus chits, you know, my bank account would be full. <laughs> You're also an artist and illustrator, and you've illustrated numerous album covers, and you drew the cover of your own book. You know, I've met lots of writers who have strong feelings about their book covers. They either love them or hate them, or I suppose everything in between. And so it's really unusual that you had the chance to design your own cover. So I wondered if you could first off describe the cover and then talk about how you came about being able to design it yourself. Sure, of course. Well, when I first signed my deal with Angry Robot. We had a meeting with their incredible people. They're all awesome. I've, I've loved every minute of dealing with them. 
And they asked me, they said, what do you see for the cover? And I said right away, I said it has to be hot pink because the main character, Willa, she's a grandmother, but she she wears a hot pink wig so that if she is ever separated from her grandson, he can find her. And I said, it's got to it's got to be hot pink, number one. And then I said, beyond that, I don't really know. And what happened over the months and they were so patient and I joke with Gemma Crefield, who was my editor, I joke with her that they'll never sign another artist because I was such a pain in the neck going back and forth on the on the design. But they had a designer named Glenn Wilkins and he came up with the idea of sort of the medical illustration. That was not my idea. That was his idea. And so what they started to send me was the hot pink book with, and I also said I, it had to have gold on it too, because as you know, gold plays very importantly in the book as well from the perspective of the, the Iker wolves. Gold is, gold is big. So I wanted gold on it and I wanted hot pink. So he, he sent it very early. It had that gold plate on it that had the phlebotomist name and my name and it was done in sort of an apothecarian style, which I didn't initially think fit because my book is a, is sci-fi. It's near future. But the more I sort of sat with it, I was like, yeah, I really, really like this apothecary font. I really like this plate. It's sort of old school. And so is my protagonist. And so I really started to like it. And one of the images they sent me was a heart with some flowers around it. And it was done in that sort of old medical illustration style pen and ink. But I didn't think the illustration was very good. You know, something they had pulled, you know, from a stock account or whatever. And I asked, I emailed Gemma and I said, Hey, can I, can I take a shot at drawing the um, heart and the flowers? And she was like, yeah, you know, whatever. So I drew it that night. I, I actually used, I don't use a nib nib and ink very much, but I wanted it to look very authentic. And so I got out a piece of Crescent watercolor board and I looked at a reference photo of an anatomical heart. I drew the heart up. I put the lilies behind it. The lilies also play a part in the book. And I put lilies behind it. And then I sent it the next day and Gemma sort of, you know, email chuckled that, she was like, oh, you just whipped that up, you know, <laughs> and I was but I was so I'm a I'm a fairly anxious person. And so I was going to spend all night working on it if I had to. And that was it. I put, you know, probably five or six hearts behind it. They said it looks a little busy. Let's pull a couple out. We pulled a couple out. And that's that's what ended up on the cover. So it was kind of a long story short, but. Um, that's how it happened. And it sounds actually very collaborative, the way books are. It was a yep. classic example of teamwork to get the cover done. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I'm glad that they drove the initial direction on the design with the concept, because some of the concepts I was throwing out, now see, because I'm all about the execution I can do, right? I, I know if it looks right. I know if it, if artistically it's correct, but the actual concepts Rob, I'm so glad I didn't get to choose the concepts because I was way off base. <laughs> and, and I'm glad none of my concepts went anywhere. 
we've gone from the inside of the book and its origins all the way out to its cover. So we started on the inside and moved out. I think we've gone cover to cover, so to speak. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of course, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've been talking with Chris Panettiere, author of The Phlebotomist, which came out from Angry Robot in September. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please consider giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I am Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show, which is part of the New Books Network, where editor Marshall Poe and co-editor Leanne Wilson reign supreme. Be well, stay safe, and happy reading.